thank you for coming. I, I hope that this will be an edifying time. Uh, a lot of the lessons are near and dear to my own heart, uh, having experienced them and thought through them and learned them even over this past year. More on that in a second. But this is about tips and tricks of the trade, helpful hints for studying the Bible, and just to set our heart aright. Let's begin with the word of prayer, shall we? Our God and Father, we are so thankful that you have chosen to reveal yourself. That in and of itself is a grace. It is a mercy. We could have been, as human beings, finite and limited, groping in the dark, lost, unable to find our way, unable to figure out life, unable to understand anything with any certainty at all. But you, in your kindness, intervened. And you revealed yourself, and you revealed yourself in a way that we could understand, using language that you created us to be able to articulate, so that we could know you, and we could know your son, and we could know the truth. And so, O oh God, help us now to honor you as we desire to delve into your word, grant in our hearts an even greater admiration and zeal to know the scriptures more deeply. Open our eyes to wonderful things in your word and grant us even further confidence that there are so many wonderful things in your word and our heart just desires to seek it all out. And may all of this be done to the worship and adoration of your name in which we pray. Amen. Sometimes people ask me, why do we need teaching on studying the Bible? Isn't this supposed to be so obvious? Isn't this supposed to be so intuitive? I mean, do you really need to have a class on how to study the Bible for people in faraway countries? Otherwise, they can't be able to read their Bible. Why do you need the study of what we might call hermeneutics, which are the principles of Bible study? Why is that necessary? Is it really valid? Can't you just open your Bible and read it? And on one hand, studying the Bible does have that clarity. But the reason that we often teach about how to study the Bible is because we often have bad habits. It's not always just because there is some mystery or the Bible is very unclear in its meaning. That is not what is going on. Rather, it is because we as people are very unclear. We as people, we have bad habits and we have bad assumptions. And one of the bad assumptions that we have is this, that you automatically get everything right when you open your Bible. Sometimes the way we describe Bible reading is that it is the greatest victory that you wake up in the morning five minutes earlier than normal. You have hit the snooze button seven times, but only seven and you get out, and you reach for your Bible, and you grab your Bible, and you have a little bit of strength. You, you might have had an ounce of coffee to do this, and you open up your Bible, and you're straining your eyes to see the page, and because your eyes saw the page, victory. <laughs> You've won. You've had a quiet time. It's a success. You can check it off the list for the day. Your day will automatically now be wonderful because of what has taken place. Victory. And we think just because you touched and opened your Bible, you won. Now, granted, that is a big achievement. Bravo. But at the same time, just because you open your Bible doesn't guarantee 
you understood it rightly. It doesn't guarantee, it doesn't come automatic that you automatically got it right, correct, what the author intended in the text. What we need to be under the persuasion of is that you actually can study the Bible wrong. You actually can reach the wrong conclusion. In fact, it's easy to do so, and it's everywhere around us. Now, I know that this image behind me, this picture behind me is quite small, but let me explain to you what is going on just as by way of illustration that you can actually get the text wrong. This is a card, a real one. Somebody sent it to me. It's for tea. I think you can see that on the screen. Join me for tea. Not me, whoever was writing it. And on the card, in this invitation, it says this, but it is you, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship, the book of Psalms. That's the citation. They don't even give you a chapter and verse. You already know when that happens, there's a problem. (laughs) And you say, Wow, what an inspirational quote. Wow, it's good to have people over for tea. Wow, it's even biblical. They got a Bible verse on there. It's a special tea time celebration. That's what the card says. Where is this Bible verse from in context anyways? Well, it's from Psalm 55. And the full verse reads like this. But it is you, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship. Now you have betrayed me. In fact, this quote from the Psalms is used about Judas in John, the Gospel of John. Now, perhaps, to be fair, perhaps this card is intended to invite somebody to a tea where you're going to confront and betray them. (laughs) And if so, that card is lovely, maybe a little deceptive, but lovely. But I think we can see it's quite easy. It's quite easy to misinterpret the Bible. We do it all the time. It happens everywhere. Here's my favorite example. We should almost celebrate it as a not holiday. March 10th, this is a devotional calendar, an inspirational calendar. And it says this, so if you worship me, it will all be yours. Luke 4, 7. At least it gave you the reference. And you say, wow, that's a little bit Joel Osteen-ish, a little bit health and wealth, prosperity gospel. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. But at least it's in the Bible. Yeah, if you actually turn in your Bible there, and you don't need to do so at the moment, let me just help you understand the context a little bit. The person who's saying this is not God. This isn't the temptations or the trials of Jesus. And the person who is saying it is Satan. Satan is saying to Jesus, so if you worship me, I don't know why they put the M in capitals. That's, that's very, very bad. But it will all be yours. That is Satan testing Jesus about whether or not he will bow the knee to Satan and worship Satan and receive all the kingdoms of the earth apart from the cross, which is blasphemous. This is a devotional calendar from hell. That's what's going on there. And it's just a reminder, you can get it wrong. You can get it wrong. Our literature sometimes gets it wrong. Publishing companies get it wrong. Cards can get it wrong. Calendars can get it wrong. You can actually misinterpret the Bible. That's not just possible, that's probable. 
So when we teach about how to study the Bible, it isn't just because we believe the Bible's clouded in some mystery or unclear. Far from it. We believe that people have sinful habits. And as a result of these sinful habits, we cloud the Bible. We misconstrue the Bible. And what we have to do is correct ourselves according to the Scriptures so that we actually understand what the Scriptures say. And along that line, one thing we need to remember then, and and we haven't actually got to the tips or tricks. This is all just introduction kind of. And this is just some very basic ideas. We know that we need to remember authorial intent. Authorial intent. What is the meaning of the Scripture? And you say, okay, it's the author's intent, but let me clarify that. It, it is, the meaning of the scriptures is not what a text could mean. What a text could mean. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, there are ways that you could say, well, the words could mean this, or they could mean that. I get to pick and choose which one it is. The Bible does not work like that. The meaning is not what a text could mean. It reminds me of an instance. I was at a church and, and this pastor said, what is your favorite animal, Christian? And I said, well, I think biblically, maybe lion, lamb, ram, bull. I'm trying to you know, think through all the different animals of the Bible. Dove? I don't know. And he said, it's a lamb. I said, great, I got it. One of, the, one of them right. He says, you know Why? I'm thinking, Jesus is a lamb, you know, something along those lines. And he says, because thus says the Lord, all we like sheep. We all like sheep. That is what the Bible says. And therefore it must be. And you said, did that really happen? Yeah, that, that actually really did happen. There's no way you can make that up. That's just too good. The word like can mean to show affection. It can also mean for something to be similar. And we understand all we like sheep have gone astray. We're talking about similarity there. Just because a text could mean something, it does not mean that that is the meaning. By the way, when sometimes, especially pre-COVID, and people knocked on your door and you knew it was the cults, that is their main operation. All they tell you is, well, firstborn could mean this, only begotten could mean that, and they're right. It could mean that, but we are not interested in what the text could say, could imply, could mean. We are interested in what the author wanted, what the author wanted. That is so critical. We need to learn that the standard is not what a text could mean. It's not what I want it to mean. Sometimes at Bible studies in evangelicalism, people say, what does this text mean to you? That's irrelevant. God won't ask you, did you obey what it meant to you? God will ask you, did you obey me? Even parents. Can you imagine? You say, clean your room. And then you ask the child after they come back to you, did you clean your room? Well, that meant to me play video games. I obeyed it wholeheartedly. No, that doesn't matter what you thought it meant. It only matters what God says it means. That is the meaning of the text. That is the meaning of the scripture. It isn't about what it could mean as a text with the words on the page or what you want it to mean. It doesn't even matter if there's a group of people that say it means this. That doesn't determine the meaning. The meaning is controlled by the author. What we are looking for and looking to do is to achieve and to understand and ascertain what the author desired. 
And how do we go about doing that? Well, we need to remember some things. One is that there is a historical background to every book of the Bible. And that background, as we talk about the author and the circumstances and the situation and the date and the audience and the needs of the audience and the situation and and purposes at hand, all of that comes together to formulate why this book was written. Why did God, at this certain time, to these people, commission this individual to write this book? That's what historical background asks. Why a book is written. And layered on top of that, as you go through a book, now you walk through what we call literary context. We are seeing, okay, since this book is written for this reason, how does that flesh out? How does that work out step by step, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter in a book? And we walk through a book to see that context. And that context leads us to a passage and gives us the main point of the passage. It tells us why a passage is written, And then after that, we study the grammar of a text. We understand how things fit together. We understand the words of a passage and what the text says thereby. And what we do, having gathered all this information, is that we have to put it all together. You can't just have all these pieces of information of Here's the historical background, why the book was written. Here's the literary context, why a passage is written. Here's some word studies. Here's what these words mean. Here's some grammar, and you just lay it out. No, you got to assemble it. you got to assemble it. And perhaps you might be wondering, before we assemble it, where you might obtain such information. Well, actually, here's the amazing thing that we have nowadays. We have the convenience, by the kindness of God, to have things like a study Bible. And in a study Bible, you have the introduction where it tells you not only the historical background, it'll even tell you, here's the main point of the book. Here's why it was written. It'll give you the punchline. That's really nice. It'll even give you the outline of the book. So you know how it all fits together on the literary context side. And then it even has footnotes in the text to explain to you different questions you may have, as well as different meanings of words and the grammar and the sense of what is going on. You can assemble a lot of what I've just been talking about by just having a good study Bible and reading those notes, like the MacArthur study Bible. But then we got to put it all together we got to put all that together, and there are kind of three questions that you ask. You say, what does the text say? What does this mean? That's the first question. And then you ask, why does it say it? And given the fact that there is a literary context and there's a main point of the passage, given the fact that there is historical background why a book is written, tell me, what each word does. Okay, if this is the main point, this word helps me to understand the main point better. How? Explain that. Articulate it. And that will help you. Okay, in light of the fact that the book was written for this purpose, to have this effect in people's lives, then how does this phrase help the author do that more? That's what we're looking to do. And once you start answering those kinds of questions of what does it mean, Why is it here in context? How is it contributing to the purpose of the passage, the purpose of the book? As you answer those questions, then application follows. So what? Because you know why the author wanted you to know this. You know why the author wanted you to understand this. And when you know why the author wanted you to grasp these things, then you know how to use the information. Then you know how to use the information, and that is application. What, why, so what? What? Why, so what? If you ask those three questions, 
over and over and over again. You can ask it on a phrase. What does this mean? Why is it there? Okay, so what? You can ask it on a word. What does this word mean? Why is it there? So what? You could ask it on a passage. What, what is this passage overall doing? Why does it do what it does? Why does that matter? And so what? How do I live that out? You can do it over and over and over and over again, and you'll get a lot out of your Bible. And it's all focused on the author, because you're asking, what did the author mean by that? Why did the author have that there? And so what? What does the author want me to do with it? It's all about the author's intent. And with that, we are ushered to the reality that we can avoid what is wrong by studying the Bible properly. We can even do it right. But more than that, we can actually do things better. We can do things better. And that's part of why we learn Bible study. It's not just to avoid wrong, which is a major part of everything we do. It isn't just to do things correctly, which is a major aim that we have. But it is actually to learn how to study the Bible better. Because unlike any other book in this world, the Bible is inspired. It is what we call verbal plenary inspiration. That means the words of Scripture, every single one of them, is uttered and written and inscribed and decided by God, working confluently with man. It is perfect. It is perfect. This past year, as some of you know, I have the honor of working on a translation, the Legacy Standard Bible, where I have gone through the entire New Testament and the entire Old Testament, line by line, verse by verse, every single word to translate the Bible over one year. It's grueling. But if there's one lesson I've learned, it's this. We have no idea how deep and wide and high and broad is the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. We have no idea. Having walked through that, you understand the level of intentionality, the level of deliberateness, the level of precision in the Bible. You see one thing, a scholar says, a commentator says, ah, not a big deal. And then you realize, no, that is a big deal. Because it could have been sent 12 other different ways. In fact, I remember translating 12 other different phrases, and it's different. Some people say, oh, well, this is just what they did at the time. No, that's not exactly what they did at the time, because you have to do the research, and and you find out everything Everything people thought is coincidental. Everything people thought was just random. There is no randomness. Every word matters. Every phrase matters. The very way it's grammatically crafted, it matters. It wasn't by accident. And when you're forced to go through it that slowly and that rigorously, you learn. You learn. This is the perfect book. Everything This word, not that word. This phrase, not that phrase. This grammatical construction, not that one. Every decision, perfect. Everything, perfect. This is the perfect book. That's why the Word of God is so deep. Because when you are selecting under the inspiration of the Spirit every individual word and phrase so that it's articulated exactly the way God wanted it. And it's articulated in such consistency and such precision, a precision that gives you the meaning, a consistency that connects with the whole of Scripture, and you start to see this, you realize 
That's what makes this book so unique. That's what makes this book so deep. There is no other piece of work in the world that could even come close to the matchless perfection of the Scripture. Do we understand why we need to know how to study the Bible? It's because you're studying a book that is absolutely clear, and you use the normal rules of grammar and history to obtain authorial intent, but you need some tips and tricks. Why? Because there's so much to get out of it. There's so much to get out of it. Now, you might say, you mentioned Legacy Standard Bible. Is this going to be an infomercial on the Legacy Standard Bible? Is that what you've reeled us in to do? Uh, kind of? Not really? No, actually, I think in studying the Bible, there is a phrase that some things are better caught than taught. Some things are better caught than taught. Sometimes we do need to teach. We do need to instruct. We do need to give the principles and the ideas and the rules and the mechanics on the theory of Bible study. But sometimes, like a lot of things in life, you have to actually go through it and do it together, hands-on, and then you truly grasp and you truly comprehend all that is going on. It's like trying to give instruction to a child about how to ride a bike, and you're talking about physics and balance. I don't know if you actually do that. I don't. But, I mean, hypothetically, you would. You just say, get on the bike and find center of gravity, and, you know, you're talking about all these different things. Sometimes it's just easier to sit the kid on the bike and say, go. And then they figure it out, and all this physics, center of gravity, balance, weight, you know, distribution of mass and force and all this kind of stuff, it, it all comes together. It's real nice like that. And sometimes in Bible study, we need to teach you the rules. We need to make you aware of it. But actually doing it hands-on in a practical, tangible way, it's helpful. Because then you say, now I understand. Now I really grasp it, and I can replicate that on something else. And I would just say this, that from translating the Legacy Standard Bible, I've caught a lot of lessons personally. I've caught a lot of lessons. In fact, I've learned how a translation is a valuable tool. And that's part of learning good Bible study is learning the tools that you have on hand. And understanding how to use a tool to its fullest capacity makes you a better Bible study student. And so I've caught these lessons. I understand better uh, by the grace of God how to use a tool of a translation. And there are just these amazing devotions that come out from all of that. And that's what I'd like to share with you this afternoon. Hopefully this is just going to be one devotion after another devotion after another devotion. Hopefully by the grace of God there will be great edification. But through all of that, through that devotional aspect, through that understanding of how to use a translation better, through catching Rather than just pure teaching, we can all together learn some tips and tricks of the trade, of how to study our Bible better, of what to look for, of how to think through things, of what questions to ask, of what to contemplate, and how to glean out of this most perfect, excellent book. That's the goal. And so there are just two tips that I want to come at today, and hopefully by the grace of God, We'll get through them, and we can learn how to better study our perfect Bibles together. Well, here, in light of that, is the first tip. Fitting things together, some thinking on grammar. Grammar. And you say, grammar? That sounds scary. 
line diagrams. And you have to put all these things all over the place. And you got parts of speech, and there's so many of them. And who knows what one means and what the other doesn't mean. And it all gets confusing. And grammar in school, you know, you kind of just don't understand that. And then there's all these rules about commas, and no one has the same rules about commas. And all these nerds get into wars about commas. And you read it about it on the news, and you laugh about it. You don't know any, you know, it's just, just this intimidating and terrifying subject. In fact, it gets to the point where sometimes I teach Greek at the master's university and seminary. And in the student review, the student writes, very, very helpful. This class taught me so much about English grammar. I said, this class is about Greek. (laughs) Wrong language. But, and I'm thinking, wait, if you don't know anything about English grammar, how'd you get in? What happened? Sometimes things have gotten to that point. I understand, and I'm being a little bit facetious here, but grammar, I think for a lot of us, can be scary. It sounds like we have to do this heavy analysis. It sounds like it's got to be some terrifying thing. Let me simplify it for you. Let me simplify it for you because you all understand grammar pretty intuitively, and all you have to do is ask two questions. What is those two questions? Here they are. What connects with what? This is kind of like building Legos. You just figure out what connects with what. And then the next question is after you figure out what is connecting with what, how do they fit together? How do they fit together? That's all you're asking. What connects with what? And how do they fit together? How do they relate together? And you can ask that over and over and over again. And so let's just do some examples together. Like this one, Ephesians five eighteen through 21. A question we might ask as we read this verse, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We might wonder, what does it really mean? Especially in light of all the charismatic issues and such, what does it really mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, what is that actually talking about? Well, let's talk about a kind of grammatical relationship called contrast taking two things and putting them opposite of each other. Do not get drunk, but, as you can see on the screen, the but is written in red to show the contrast, but be filled with the Spirit. We are contrasting. We are comparing and contrasting two things. One is being drunk, and the other one is being filled with the Spirit. When you are drunk, you are under the influence, under the influence of alcohol. We are familiar with that phraseology, So if drunkenness is wrong, but the issue is that you are under the influence of something else, then being filled with the Spirit pertains to what? Influence. In fact, when something really fills something up, it dominates that thing, yes? Uh, To use an analogy, we could talk about how sometimes a home can be filled with all kinds of different things, and we would say that that home That's the theme of that home. That's what dominates that home. That's what pervades that home. Well, the Spirit should fill our lives so that He is in control. He is influencing our lives. And we could be even more particular than that because what does Paul say is wrong specifically with getting drunk? There could be all kinds of things he says that are wrong with getting drunk, and they would all be true, but he wants to focus on this one. For, for helps to explain something, for that is dissipation. It is the loss of self-control. 
It is the activity of losing one's discipline. It is the activity of being undignified and loose and indulging oneself in all kinds of wickedness. That is what is wrong with drunkenness. It's that you're under the influence and of something else. You lose control, and as a result of losing control, you engage in all kinds of sinful behavior. Being filled with the Spirit then means the opposite of that, which is to be under the Spirit's full control, and therefore to have not a loss of control, but to have absolute self-control. And upon having self-control, instead of living in a life of dissipation where you're debauched and ungodly, you are promoting godliness. That is the nature, fundamentally, of being filled with the Spirit. You might say, well, okay, I understand that, but is there a specific way that looks like? Is it about speaking in tongues or barking like a dog or flying or, or touching people and healing them? Oh, what, what does that look like? Well, look at the next phrases with me. Speaking to one another, singing and making melody. Are those complete sentences? Do you say to somebody, speaking to one another? And that's a complete sentence. No, you might say, you can speak to one another. That's a complete sentence. But speaking to one another, that's not a complete sentence. Making melody with your heart before the Lord is not a complete sentence. These are not complete sentences. They depend on something. Remember the two questions. What connects with what? And how do they relate? Well, what do these connect with? They connect with being filled with the Spirit. And they tell you, how do they relate? They tell you what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? What accompanies being filled with the Spirit? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody with your heart. Always giving thanks and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. The Bible tells you what it looks like. The Bible tells you how to be a Spirit-filled Christian. Well, you don't need to make this up. You don't have to listen to it on television or, or read about it in a book. The Bible tells you the how-to right here. It actually defines how this looks like. And that's the practicality of actually understanding and, and just carefully reading a text and asking the questions, what connects with what and how do they relate? They actually tell you even how to do something. Speaking of which, here's another passage. Romans 12, 9 through 13. We read the phrase, let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. And we might wonder and understand it a little bit at first to say, I understand what that means, but is there any specific way I can do that? Can you give me some practical tips, Paul, on what that looks like? Now notice the next phrase is all highlighted in yellow by abhorring what is evil. Did you catch that? Abhorring what is evil is not a command. It's not its own sentence. It's not a complete phrase. It depends on something. And even the text here of the Legacy Standard Bible tells you it's by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. Those are all ways that you love without what? Hypocrisy. All different kinds of ways, and, and this is important, even particularly nowadays. Our society defines love as an emotion. Our society defines love as tolerating whatever it thinks is 
good. But what does the Bible say? What is the first words out of Paul's mouth about the nature of true love without hypocrisy? Abhor what is evil. If our love tolerates what God hates, it's not love. Or to be more rooted in what the text says here, it's love with hypocrisy. It's the most hypocritical love because it looks like love, but it's the direct opposite of what the author of love, God, has demanded. It's the opposite of what God has demanded. We abhor what is evil because that is true love based upon the author of love. We therefore cling to what is good and we are devoted to one another and we give preference. These are things that we do with each other. But notice love here without hypocrisy always has its focus in God, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering, being devoted to prayer. And yes, in that vein, then you meet the horizontal, contributing to the needs of the saints and pursuing hospitality. There is a way for us to love without hypocrisy. And Paul himself has described it. You know, there are these books that they say, you know, three, they always have a biblical number, three ways to love your neighbor, 12 steps to becoming a better Christian, 40 Days of purposes. 144,000 applications of this text. I've never seen a book like that, but I'm sure it'll come out eventually. They're just working really hard on it. Now, you don't have to do that. The Bible comes up with its own ways. Do you see that? You don't have to make up your own ways. The Bible comes up with its own ways. And in fact, the Bible's ways are better ways. Why? Because they come from the Bible. They're better than any book's ways because they come from the Scripture with the Scripture's full authority and full revelation. The Bible is really practical. Have you, have you seen that now? The Bible is really practical. You just have to ask the right question of what fits with what and how do these things relate? And when you do, you start to realize the Bible gives you all kinds of tips on how things come together and how to live out what it commands us to do. Along that line, I will say this, that you might read some other translations on a Romans 12, 9 through 13, and it will read more like this. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Devote to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. It'll make them all imperatives, all their own commands. Now, there's nothing wrong with that per se. It's fine. Of course, you're supposed to do these things, but do you see how retaining what the original text has a little bit is helpful because, of course, you're supposed to abhor what is evil. Of course, you're supposed to cling to what is good. But that all helps you to know how to love without hypocrisy. Now you know why the Bible is commanding all of these things. And that is important. And that is important. That matters. It helps you to grasp what is going on in the text. And that's the beauty of good, solid translations. Now, there's another one. And let's Keep going through this. First Peter 1, 13 through 15. This is another example of just asking those grammatical questions, what goes with what and how do they relate? And we might say, hey, there are some verbs up front. Having girded your minds for action. Well, that's not a complete phrase. Being sober in spirit. 
That's also not a complete action, but there is a complete action here. Fix your hope. Fix your hope. That's a real phrase. That is a complete sentence. You could tell somebody, fix your hope. But it doesn't make much sense to say, having girded your minds for action, what do you want me to do? Uh, Being sober in spirit, yes, I I know I need to do that, but what's the punchline? Fix your hope. That is a standalone sentence, and as such, it is the main idea, and everything connects with that. Having girded your minds for action, step one. Being sober in spirit, step two. Fix your hope. Then you can actually do that job. And this becomes really practical. How often is it that we often tell ourselves, hey, I I just need to put my hope. I just need to focus on Christ. I just need to fixate all my expectations, all my aspirations, my entire vision of how I perceive, uh, understand life completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I just can't seem to do it. Well, You might not be able to do it unless you do the two prerequisite steps first. That's why they come first in Peter's mind. And the first step is having girded your minds for action. Have you actually stopped and tried to get control of your thinking? Have you actually stopped to tighten up all the loose ends of your mind and to have mental discipline and focus before ever trying to just Go right in and fix your hope. If the answer is no, and you're struggling with why you can't fix your hope on Christ, well, it's because you haven't done step one. It's kind of like the person who keeps trying to turn on their computer, and they call the IT person. The computer's not working. It's not working. It's it's dud. I need to return it. I need to bring it out. And the person walks all the way back and says, did you plug it in? (laughs) What? You got to do that. Step one, plug it in. Then you can turn it on. Oh, well, step one, have you girded your minds for action? Have you, have you actually sat down and prayed and made sure that your mind is focused, that you are engaging your mind in the right direction? Or are you just haphazardly going through life? Have you, as a result of girding up your minds for action, done step two, which is being sober? Sober stands in contrast with being drunk, as opposed to being intoxicated with this world, are distracted by this world, are being pulled in every direction by any trend and fad of this world. Are you thinking soberly, clear-headed, without distraction, without confusion, without being pulled in one direction or the other? Is that the kind of focus you have? If the answer is no, then you got to do that first. How else are you going to fix your mind on Christ if your mind's all over the place? Of course you won't be able to fix your mind. That makes sense. That's why Peter says it. Follow the steps. Follow the steps. Fix your hope is the main thing Peter wants us to do for a lot of reasons, but he gives you prerequisite steps to get you there. Pay attention to them. They actually are really helpful. They can actually change your life. Now, you probably can't just see what I did there, but if you really look at the screen hard, you'll notice that after the word Jesus Christ, that is the phrase, grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's a period at the end, and now the period is green. You say, why? Why would you focus on a period at the end? Just to make a point that this is the end of a sentence. And just to help us remember, when you have a sentence and then another sentence, there are two 
distinct, maybe related, but distinct units. And, and as such, you can, that helps you to know how to put things together because you put things together within a sentence. We understand that. So when we look at these next three phrases, as obedient children, that's not a complete sentence. Not being conformed, that's not a complete sentence. Like the Holy One, that's, that's not a complete sentence. None of those are complete sentences. And you might be wondering, does that go back? to the previous verse, or does that go forward? Remember, there was a period at the end. So it can't go back, because the period says, stop here. Don't go, you know, that this is a new thought. This is a new idea. And so we know it doesn't go back. It goes forwards. As obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be what? Holy. And that's the main point. Be holy. And so everything here as obedient children, not being conformed, but like the Holy One who called you, is all telling you about how to be holy, what that looks like. You know, if you were a preacher or a Bible study leader or discipling your children or whatnot, you would have three points. How to be holy, three points. As what? Obedient children, not being conformed to the former lusts and being like the Holy One. What does the holiness look like? It looks like willing conformity. Holiness is not something you do out of a begrudging attitude. You do it to please a father. You do it out of willful obedience. Second, what does holiness look like? Well, what it doesn't look like is being conformed to the former lusts. Holiness actually has a definition. It has a standard. And it's anything but what the world has. Anything but what the world has. There's a real constitutive, substantive definition to it. And therefore, there's a height to holiness. Because it's not just being better than the world. It's not just being a better you. It's not just even being nice or moral or good. What does the text say? But like the Holy One who called you. God is the standard of holiness. There really is a real definition. You can't change it. The world doesn't have it. He is that definition. And you don't say, oh, well, I'm good enough because I'm just a little bit better. No, that's not the standard. The standard is not better or good enough. The standard is God. The standard is God. Be holy yourselves also in what? All your conduct. Holiness extends to every single aspect of our lives. And so what do we learn from examples like these? As you read your Bible, whenever you have committed to doing so, you ask the questions to yourself, what connects with what? How do these words, these phrases connect together? And how do they relate together? What exactly is the relationship between the two? And upon doing so, upon doing so, this will really help you to understand the text. It'll help you to understand the main point of the text. We saw in all those different examples, the main emphasis. Here's what Peter wants. He wants us to fix our hope. Here's what Paul wants. He wants love to be without hypocrisy. Here's what they want us to do. Here's the main thing. But we can also see how they build all of that out. We can also see how they explain all that out. And that even tells us practically 
how to live it, practically how to live it. Break things down, see what connects with what, and ask yourself and answer the question, how does this all relate to each other? And if you do that, there's a lot of insight there. There's a lot of insight there. That's about fitting things together, some things about grammar. But in addition to that, here's tip number two, frequently used words. Frequently used words. And let's have some thinking on word study. We talked about grammar. Let's talk about some words. Now, repeated words. When you say things over and over and you say it with the same exact wording, it can really help to stitch things together. We have wordplay, plays on words. We have words that are repeated to help you think on a theme. In fact, even in the modern day on social media, they have hashtag whatever, and the hashtag is a word that is a keyword that links all these different statements together. We do this all the time. In fact, there are modern examples of people doing plays on words, repeating words to uh, having similar sounding words, even to create kind of jokes and other kinds of ideas. That's actually where you have a whole category of jokes called dad jokes. I try to research them online and see what I could incorporate into this message. And the answer was nothing. I guess that's a dad joke too. But, the, uh, but while we don't do it very well in our society, the Bible does it perfectly. The Bible does it perfectly. It does it in a profound way. And what we want to see is those repetitions. As you're reading a verse or you're reading a passage, watch out for words that repeat themselves because they might be stitching together some important ideas and even a theme. And you say, well, can you give me an example? Gladly. Here's one, 1 Peter chapters 2 through 3, actually. And we can just kind of walk through this. It's about the word fear. It's about the word fear. Notice verse 17. Honor all people. Love the brethren. Fear God. Honor the king. Notice we are called to fear God. Next verse. Servants, be subjects to your masters with all fear. Now, we might read that, and if we didn't read it in context and we weren't really paying attention, we might think, hey, servants, be subjects to your masters and be scared of them. Be scared of them, respect them, or something like that. Or uh, you got to subject yourself to them, otherwise you might have fearful consequences. And so have that kind of fear. But fear was in the previous verse, and it was talking not about fearing man, but fearing God. So what do you think Peter's talking about with all fear in the next verse? Not fearing man, but fearing God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear implied of God. Servants, it's not just good enough to be a good employee. Servants, it's not just good enough to be a hard worker. Servants, it's not just good enough to have a submissive, uh, supportive, reverent, respectful attitude to your master. You need to make sure that everyone knows and it's done in a way that exhibits that you fear God. If they don't know that you're a Christian because of this, if they don't know that your life is driven because you are in totally holy awe and terror of your God, then you haven't actually truly submitted in the workplace the way God wants you to. It may look good to people. It may look good to some even Christians. But it isn't what God demands. is isn't what God demands. And once we understand that, then we understand in 1 Peter 3, 1, 
when wives are to be subjected to their own husbands, that they may be one that is the husbands without a word by the conduct of their wives as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Some people say, oh, I guess wives have to be scared of their husbands because husbands are scary people. Well, maybe husbands are scary people. The, the first Peter 3 is going to deal with that and, and rebuke some husbands and such. But that's not what this verse is talking about. Fear of who? who, who what has this word fear always been linked with? The fear of God. That is what is going on here. They need the husband, the unbelieving husband particularly, needs to observe the wife's conduct as she fears God. As she fears God. She's not scared of her husband. She's fearing God. In fact, if you understand that, notice the next uh, verse on the screen, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. Notice the verse does not say that intimidation won't happen, or the verse is not saying that uh, intimidation isn't intimidating. It is that you do not what? Fear it. You're not intimidated by what intimidates others. You do not fear. Why? Because if you are fearing God, if you are fixated on him, if that's what you're concerned about, you're not worried. You know there could be issues. You know there could be problems but you don't fear them. They don't scare you anymore. The most powerful way, the most powerful way to overcome fear is to fear the right thing. The most powerful way to overcome fear, especially in our society today, as things seem to deteriorate around us, the most powerful way to overcome fear is to fear the right thing. And Peter says that. 1 Peter 3, later on, It says this in verses 14 through 15, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their fear. Why should you not fear their fear? Because you fear God. You fear God. By way of illustration, I was one time watching a documentary on pilots in Israel, military pilots, but I think this is indicative of any kind of military pilot at all. And they said to the host on the documentary, they said, you know, pilots don't fear death. We don't fear death. There's only one thing a pilot fears, failing the mission. That's how we're trained. The only thing that the pilot fears is failing the mission. If you accomplish the mission, you don't care about anything else. The only thing you're really scared of is not doing it right. When we have true fear, of God. And we know before him we've acted rightly. It's the immediate release of knowing then everything else doesn't really matter. We're fine because we've done the main thing that we were most concerned about, that we were in a sense fearful about, and that is pleasing him. You want to overcome fear? Peter walks us through it. Fear the right one. Do not fear their fear. You trust in God You don't need to fear their fear because you're concerned about the one thing. And once you have that, nothing else really matters. It will be okay. God will take care of us. In fact, this is an Old Testament quote here that comes from Proverbs 3. And you guys should remember a very famous verse in Proverbs 3, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not fear their fear. Do not fear what they fear. Uh, Just a side tip here. Do you notice on the screen 
and do not fear. Their fear is in caps, small caps. That's an indication in the translation that this is from the Old Testament. That this is from the Old Testament. And if it's from the Old Testament, you should go back and read the Old Testament passage because it's pulling all of that information into this text to help you understand it better. So you don't have fear of this world because you have the fear of God. And that even colors our apologetics, our evangelism, because even as we make bold proclamations, we do it with gentleness and fear. So people see, even in how we're ministering and how we're talking and declaring things to them, we still fear God. That is what is going on there. Now, there's another example of where repeated wordplay can can actually help clarify and bring forth a theology. Leviticus 25, 42, it says this, For they are my slaves, whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold in a slave sale. A lot of times, especially in our culture, people wonder about the Bible and slavery, and they think, oh, no, the Bible condones this immoral practice of chattel slavery and such, and, and, and so how are we going to defend it? And this has gone on and raised all kinds of translational issues of translating slave to servant or bondservant and the like. But if you actually say what the Bible says, the Bible is its own best defense and a most profound defense of everything and an immense clarification to everything. Notice what this text says. For they are my, that is God's, what? Slaves. Whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. Now, why does God talk about Egypt? Because in Egypt, Israel was a slave. And God says, and this is so clear in the text, it says they were slaves in Egypt. And that slavery was wrong. And God brought them out but he brought them out for a purpose, and this is important, to be his what? Slaves. Sometimes when we think about salvation, sometimes when we think about deliverance, we think we have freedom. And in one sense, we do. But in another sense, we are what? Slaves. But the question is, which master will you have? That's all the difference. Which master will you have? There is a kind of slavery that is wicked because the master is what? Wicked. And there is a kind of slavery that is the most protective, the most glorious, the most liberating, the most defensive, the most noble. Why? It's all because of the master. Notice what Yahweh says here. They are my slaves whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold in a Slave sale. How dare you even think of selling my own? They're mine. That's what God says. They're not yours. You see, biblical slavery to Yahweh ended slavery for Israel. Did you see that in the text? You could not sell your fellow Israelite into slavery. Why? Because you have no right. You have no right. God through plague and fire and crossing the Red Sea, through miracle and power, bought his own, and they are his. And you have no right to overcome those who belong to him. He is a good master. He cares for his own. He defends his own. He truly owns his own, and therefore they are his, and he protects them. That's what we learn in this verse. Do you see a contrast? 
slavery to God is actually preventing slavery to the world. And if you want an even better one, or one that derives from this, 2 Chronicles 12.8. People ask, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? Or what's your favorite verse that you ever translated for Legacy Standard Bible? That's hard. You just love them all. But this one could be within the top 10,000. So, <laughs> in fact, this one was so good. I, I texted Joe Zakovich, and I texted everybody, and they all said it was so good. The only person who didn't say it was so good was Mark Zakovich because he just told me, text it to MacArthur. That is his way of saying it's very, very good. And MacArthur really, really loved it. Now, Second Chronicles 12, 8. 12, 8. But they will become his slaves. This is what God says. So that they may know the difference between my slavery and the slavery of the kingdoms of the countries. You say, what's going on here? Well, in the context, you have a king named Rehoboam. He's a sinful man. And God, in punishment for his sin, sends up the nation of Egypt to take Israel captive. Long ago, Israel was what in Egypt? They were slaves. And God says, I'll let it happen again. They will become his what? Slaves. Because now they're going to learn the difference. There's a slavery that I gave them. It was a slavery to me. I owned them. I freed them. I allowed them to flourish. I allowed them to thrive because I owned them. They were mine. I bought them. I cared for them. I am their master. And they could have known that. But now, because their idolatry, because their whoring heart went after all the nations and their idols, they're going to learn the hard way. That slavery to Yahweh is very much different than slavery to the world. And there's a profound difference. And as you see the history unfold and these Israelites being taken prisoner and being taken captive, then you know, who do you want to serve? Who do you want to be a slave of? God or man? The choice is so clear, isn't it? The two different kinds of slavery, so obvious, so distinguishable, so distinct. And that's the power of repetition of words, is it not? That's the power of a repetition of words. Which slavery do you want? Romans 6 reminds us that we are slaves of Christ. We are slaves of Christ. Yes, we have been bought free. Yes, grace has abounded. But that doesn't make us free to do whatever we want. That makes us free to actually serve, free to be his slave. And there is no better slavery than being the slave of God. Because there's two kinds of slavery. Slavery of the world style and slavery of God's. And the very fact that the Bible can make this distinction, do you see it now? The Bible is its own greatest defender. When people say, oh, the Bible endorses slavery, what do we say? It endorses slavery to God. It condemns this kind of worldly what? Slavery. It's very clear. Very clear. And a consistent translation brings it out. And a consistent translation shows what should have always been shown about the clarity of Scripture. Well, here's another example. Luke chapter 16, 
verses 4 through 9. Luke 16 can be a confusing passage to some people because you have this unjust steward who seems to be commended. In fact, it's not just that he seems to be commended. He is commended for his dishonesty. And what is the idea here? It's an argument of lesser to greater. If an unbeliever can be so shrewd, can use things so strategically for his own selfish ends, how much more should a believer who has the right motivation and the right cause be strategic and be thoughtful thoughtful about utilizing all his resources for the glory of God. It's an argument from lesser to greater. It's all about stewardship. That's why there is this even word here that he says in Luke 16, verse 4, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the stewardship, it's about how you take care of what God has entrusted to you. Are you going to be more shrewd than even the unbeliever who is quite shrewd? How are we going to do that? And notice the repetition that takes place here to show the purposefulness of the steward, this unjust steward. What is his goal? He says this, when I'm removed from the stewardship, people will take me into their homes. Take me into their homes. That's the goal. Take me into your home. So he summons each one of his master's debtors. He begins to say, how much do you owe? And he says, 100 baths of oil. And he said to him, what? Take, same word, take. I want you to take me into your home, so you better what? Take something. Then he does it again. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? 100 cores of wheat. And he says what? Take your bill and write 80. Deliberateness. He has a goal. This steward does. He wants people to take him in. So what does he do as a result? He crafts the entire strategy, even the wording of the strategy, to emphasize the point. That's how intentional he is. That's how deliberate he is. And that's why the master praises the unjust steward, the unrighteous steward, because he had acted so what? Shrewdly. That's what happened. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. We need to be equally deliberate. And how do we know that? Notice the last verse on this page. And I say to you, make friends for yourself from the wealth of unrighteousness. Really use your resources well. Be equally strategic to this unjust steward. How do we know that? So that when it fails, they will take you into eternal dwellings. Did you see that? The taking that the unjust steward did in his unrighteousness, we are to have that same disposition for not unrighteousness, but righteousness. Equally strategic, equally deliberate, equally precise, equally thoughtful, equally wise, equally cunning in the right ways. Those are the things that we're supposed to do. And the narrative brings this out by saying, take, 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 all over the place. And it's not just that you have words in a passage, just like we have there. You have words in a book. And um, sometimes when we read a book, we might not catch it until we see a very prominent passage and then work backwards. You got the answer key. You know that verse is really important. So look up the words that are in that verse and see if there was a backstory to them. And upon doing so, you can actually find some really helpful things. Let me give you an example of this. John 19, verse 30. It is finished. We know that. We're very familiar with that. We, we like that verse. It's good. It's powerful. It's profound. Well, maybe look up the word finished throughout the book of John. And here's some examples. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. God, Christ has a work to finish. It's a divine work that only the divine can have. And then notice John 5, 36, the father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness about me. I glorified you on earth having finished the work 
And then even in John 19, 28, a couple of verses just before the verse that where Jesus says it is finished, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been finished in order to finish. Do you hear the repetition? Do you hear the emphasis of John? What is he emphasizing about our Lord? He finished what no other man could. He finished what no other one could. He finished and completed the divine work of the Father that could only be done by the divine Son. And he accomplished that in and of himself to finish the Scripture and all that was promised and prophesied. He secured all of that. And so now you understand the weight of the word finished. It is the full weight of atonement, all of its consequences, and something that God ordained God could alone do. That's what he did on the cross. And therefore, the cross is one of the greatest proofs of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ because he finished it. No one else can. He did. He did it alone. Finished. It matters. It matters. Romans 2.17, this is another example. It's about boasting. Look at this. People boast in God in all the wrong ways that I have God and you don't. They boast in the law. That's a kind of arrogant boasting. But then notice in Romans 3.27, it says this. Where is the boasting? If God saved you, not because you have the law, not because you were worth it, not because you merited it, not because you had some good collateral or good leverage with him, where is the boasting? You can't boast any longer. The gospel is the crusher of all pride and all individual boasting and all boasting in itself. Abraham would have had something to boast about, but not before God. Yeah, you, you could boast, but it's worth nothing. It doesn't really make a difference to the highest place. And instead, what does Romans 5 remind us? We don't boast in ourselves. We don't boast of what we have. We don't boast in who we are. Romans 5, 2, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We don't boast in ourselves. And if we are going to boast in ourselves at all, it's going to be that we boast in our what? Afflictions. We boast that we're nothing. That's what we hold up before the world, that we are weak and we are suffering. Why? Because that boast elevates the boast about who? God. He's everything. To have 100%, you got to have somebody who's a zero. And we're the zero. And so what we're going to boast in is that we're the zero. So the 100%, that is God, is so much clearer. That's what we do. Trace out a repeated word about boast. Hence, we boast in God. We boast in God. Romans traces out boasting because it traces out who is the center and who truly has done the work of salvation and who is it. This is the result of faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone. That is the result therein. Well, there's another passage where you can kind of see this and uh, see the idea of repetition. And it, it even gives you a kind of a nice uh, lesson about how to use the tools of the trade. And, and that is 2 Peter 1, verse 9. 2 Peter 1, verse 9. It says this, For in whom these things are not present, 
that one is blind. It's in context talking about the process of sanctification, of having virtue and adding on to virtue, knowledge and knowledge, self-control and self-control, perseverance and perseverance, godliness and godliness, brotherly love and love. And if you do those things, then it's good. But if these things are not present in you, then you are blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Now, this word forgotten is very important in the book of Peter. But notice, if you can see on the screen, there's a footnote. There's a footnote. And here's a lesson about how to use something like the Legacy Standard Bible. Pay attention to footnotes. Say, why? Because they're the answer key. They're when the translator said, oh, I wish we could put this in here, but it's too hard. We don't have the creativity right now to figure it out. We'll put in a footnote. Then they'll get it. And sometimes I always joke like, let's let's just put everything in the footnote. Because then it'll be so obvious and so clear what we're thinking and what the text is having us think through that it's unavoidable. Here, it's or, it could be translated, escaped their notice. Cross-reference 2 Peter 3, 5, and 8. So guess where this is connected to? 2 Peter 3, 5, and 8. Pay attention to the footnote. It gives you the answer key. You say, what's in 2 Peter 3, 5, and 8? Well, it escaped their notice. Who's it talking about? The false teachers here. The false teachers who said, oh, things are just going along as they've always gone along. Kind of a universalism in, in their approach to the world. A uniformity in their approach to the world. It escapes their notice. What is Peter warning about earlier? If you are not engaged in sanctification, Here's the danger. You could be a false believer, even a false teacher. That's how dangerous it is. You could be one of these people that it's talked about in 2 Peter chapter 3 if you're not careful. And you should mark those people out because they could be dangerous. And so Peter exhorts us, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. You don't do what they do. You should not be anywhere near those who are faking it, anywhere near those who have a false sanctification, anywhere near those who are false teachers. Don't don't let it escape your notice that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. Pay attention to those little words. They help stitch the book together. And pay attention to those footnotes because they're the answer key that tells you, hey, these two things are connected, so please connect them. It's helpful. One more example. Oh, that's actually not true. I actually have like three. Is that okay? Okay, here we go. Three more examples. One of them is in Esther. I'll try to reach a conclusion really quick. Ah, Just kidding. But uh, here we are. And in Esther, the word is the word reached. The word reached. And at first you read it and you think, oh, well, I mean just there. It kind of makes sense. Well, by now you probably have noticed everything in the Bible is very precise. And in a book of Esther, which never mentions the name of God once, everything is about providence. Everything is providence demonstrated through contrast, irony, wordplay, the whole like, and this is one of them. Esther 2.12, now when it reached the turn of a young lady, okay, doesn't seem that eventful. Esther 2.15, now when it reached the turn of Esther, yeah, I understand. There's a contrast. All the young ladies and then specifically Esther. Okay, that's good. And then now in the law in every province where the word of the law of the king reached. Yeah, 
I understand that that's there too, but maybe that's just coincidence. And then Esther 4.14, the famous phrase, and who knows whether you have not reached royalty for such a time as this. That's a famous phrase. Maybe the Lord has set you here for such a time as this. Maybe you have not reached royalty for such a time as this. Now you know. Oh, wait a minute. Reach, reach might be a big deal because it's been used all this time and now it's used strategically here. And then the kicker is this. Esther goes in before the king and what does she do with the scepter? She what? Reaches for it. Now you know. This word reach, it's a big deal. It traces how God has been acting behind the scenes, invisibly, just like the nature of the book of Esther. He has been acting in his providence to align circumstances one after the other. And he's even given you a word to trace out how he's been providentially interacting and being involved. He has allowed Esther to reach her turn. He has had Esther reach a certain time for this. He has had Esther reach out and touch the top of the scepter. And then the eunuchs reach Haman's home because they're about to reverse everything that Haman did. And then the king's word and this law reached all the cities to transform what was supposed to be sorrowful into joy. And so therefore they had joy when the letter reached them. This is God's providential activity. And you can trace it through one word, one word. Pay attention, pay attention to the words. Well, let's just do a couple examples. These are examples two and three of trying to put all this together of putting all this together. And by the way, how to use a translation then of in, in this process of seeing repetition of words, one of the things that we really stressed with the Legacy Standard Bible was a consistency that did two things. One is that you could actually trace these things out. You could find similar words, the identical words, same root words, and you could trace it out yourself in English. And two, we really tried to work very, very hard to prevent what we call false positives, where it's two words, but they're two different Greek words or two different Hebrew words underneath, but they're translated the same in English. Uh, we try to prevent that from happening so that you can actually do this easily with your own English translation. You can say, oh, that word is probably the same as that word. 99% of the time it is. And you just keep going through that and you can actually do this yourself. Just as you read your Bible, read it slow and hear and listen for words that are repeating. Well, let's put some together. Psalm 62. Do you notice? Surely my soul waits in silence for God. Surely he is my rock. And then at the end of this phrase, surely they have counseled to thrust him down. What word do you hear over and over again? The word surely. This isn't that hard. We can recognize that. And if you go to the next section, you have surely wait in silence for God. Surely he is my rock and my salvation. Surely men of low degree. Do you hear the word surely again? Surely we do. And so here we are. We have three phrases here that begin with surely. And then at the end of the psalm, we have three phrases again that begin with surely. This helps us to actually map out the psalm. It actually helps us to know how the psalm fits together, how it's organized by the repetition of this word. And if you want kind of the book, the cliff notes and the quick summary of this, one set deals with other people like this wicked man who assails a man that you may murder him like a leaning wall, like a fence thrust down. They have counsel to thrust him down from his high position. This is about confrontation. This is about 
the conviction and the confidence one has in God. Surely my soul waits in silence for God so that you can make a bold stand, that you can be courageous against the external circumstances that are around you. But it's not just always what you do with the outside. Sometimes it's about what happens inside isn't it? Sometimes it's about what happens in your personal life, and you also need to be sure of God in those situations. And so the second half of the psalm says, surely wait in silence for God, O my soul, for my hope is in him. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. That's what we do in the privacy of our own homes. That's what we do in our own rooms by ourselves. We don't just make a bold stand on the outside, but on the inside, we pour out our heart before God. Why? Because I am convinced, I'm confident, I'm determined. Surely God is my rock and my salvation. That's what goes on there. But if we zoomed in on this text in Psalm 62, 9 through 10, notice some repetition that takes place. Men of low degree are merely vanity. They are together lighter than a breath of vanity. Do not put vain hope in robbery. What do you hear over and over in those phrases I just read? The word vain. Yes, the word vanity in all kinds of ways. Why? Because that stitches something together. Don't admire sinful people. They're just vanity. They are people who look at themselves. They are people who are empty. They are people who are like a breath. They're temporary. They're fleeting. They lack substance. Don't admire them. And understand this, that they're Their effectiveness is vanity. They are together lighter than a breath of vanity. They're nothing. They're nothing. Sometimes we get bent out of shape about people in the world, and it really intimidates us, and it causes us to lose our steadfastness in God. What we need to remember is what they are and what they amount to and what they have done will only amount to what? A breath of vanity. Just dust in the wind. That's what it'll be in the end. Why are we getting so upset? Why are we getting bent out of shape? Why are we losing trust in God? And most certainly in light of that, notice the next phrase, do not put vain hope in robbery. You don't do what they do. You don't aspire after them. That kind of hope, that kind of aspiration, it's what? It's vain. It's just as much of a breath of air as they are. Never go down that road. Instead, put your trust in God. Surely my soul waits on him. That needs to be our disposition. All right, Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, have you look at this with me. If there is any encouragement, if there is any consolation, if there is any fellowship, if any affection and compassion, do you notice the repetition of the word if? Yes, excellent. Well, when we talk about if, If this is true, then do this. If becomes the motivation. If becomes the basis. If becomes the grounds behind what we do. Since something is true, then we do something else. And so these four statements are talking about, in context, the motivation behind unity. Philippians is a book about unity here. And these four statements present to us the nature of how You can have unity, but you first have to have the right motivation behind it. And it comes from what we have in Christ. It comes from what we have in Christ. And notice, what is the main command? If any affection and compassion, then do what? Then fulfill my joy. Notice this. Paul doesn't just say be unified. He could have. There's lots of ways to say that. 
In fact, the very next phrase that you think the same way is a way to talk about unity. What does Paul say unity is for him? His what? His joy. You want to know how to please God and make God joyful as mediated and represented by Paul? Do you want to know how to make a pastor happy? Pursue unity. Pursue unity. But you say, what kind of unity? Just any kind of superficial compromise? No, that you think the same way. It's a deep kind of unity. A unity that is about how we think, about truth, and about life together. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, glad you asked. Paul answers, by what? By maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose. Do you notice he's just walking you through how to actually be unified? These are all the steps. These are all the ways. You don't need 44,000 ways to be unified. Paul gives you the inspired ones right here. These are the means of unity. But you might say, okay, Paul, you've been emphasizing how to think. You've been emphasizing that we think on one purpose even. You've even said that. But is there a way for us to pull all this together? It's a lot of information. Is there just a picture of someone who embodies this? And Paul says, yeah, that you think the same way, thinking on one purpose. Philippians 2.5, it introduces such a famous passage to us. Have this way of thinking. Why does Paul say that? Because he's saying, I told you, you need to think. I told you, you need to think on one purpose. And now I'm going to tell you the person who has that way of thinking. Who is that? Which was also in Christ Jesus. He is the ultimate one who thought the right way. And as we think after him, then we will have true unity. Christ did not sacrifice truth at any cost. Christ also was not proud. And both of those things go hand in hand to producing true humility. So what do we learn from this? How to read our Bible. You're reading your Bible tomorrow morning, maybe this evening or whatnot. And what do you do when you open your Bible? You ask what the author meant by this in context. And as you're reading, you're thinking, so how, how do these things fit together? How, how do these things relate together? And you're looking for any frequently repeated words that might bring out a theme, a contrast, a wordplay. And there's a lot to learn just by asking those questions, just by asking those questions alone, you start to wrestle with the text. And then the text wrestles with you so that your life is under the submission of all that Christ intends. I hope this has been a profitable time. Thank you for your time.